The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, it's good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. Uh, go ahead and get to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to get there in a little while. Uh, let me pray for us one more time as we get started and dig into God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, we are, are so grateful. Lord, on this week in particular, a week that we set aside even as a nation to express thanksgiving. Lord, we know that you have so much to be thankful for. Much so much you've given us in yourself, ways you have provided for our every need, ways that you've cared for us. Lord, we give you thanks for the promise we just sang about, the promise wrapped up in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, that God you are with us forever. And so we rest in that promise tonight. We rest in that promise this Advent season. But even as we look forward with deep, deep longing, yearning, hope, and if we're honest, sometimes doubt that Christ is going to come again, Lord, we know even as we look forward to the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth that you are not absent from us even now, present with us as your people. So Lord, would you be with us? We need you. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. Well, I'm excited to kick off our Advent season, our series and season for us tonight. And my goal really for tonight is to sort of lay a foundation for where we're going to be heading over the next couple of weeks as we close out 2022 together. And before we get into Matthew 6 and before we get into the text, I thought it would be really just pastorally wise to acknowledge uh, what some of us in the room might be feeling as we anticipate an entire series on giving and on generosity, and on money. And I've been in the church long enough to know that when a pastor says, hey, we're going to spend X amount of time in the coming weeks talking about money, that our range of emotional response would be somewhere from kind of just like, I don't know that I like it, all the way into, no, I'm walking out now, please, if it wouldn't be awkward and everyone wouldn't stare at me. 
And I'm aware of that. And I think there's primarily two reasons for why our response is that way when we think about and talk about money within the church. First, money just isn't something generally that we talk about as a society and a culture. Like it's not good dinner conversation with your neighbors, right? Like, hey, come over for dinner. By the way, what do you do for a living? How much do you make and how much do you give to your local church? Like that's not the go-to get to know you conversations. But I think a bigger reason why in the church we get a little squirmy when it comes to conversations around money and finances and generosity is that some churches do and say some really wacky and unhelpful and even downright hurtful things when it comes to money and generosity. I know some of us, even in this room, have walked through very real, tangible experiences of hurt around how churches talked about money or thought about money or addressed the subject of money, how they treated people who gave more money, how they spent money, all of those kinds of things. And so if you're coming into this series just a little bit with your guard up, I just want to invite you from the very beginning to say that that's okay. I hope that you find this to be a safe place for you to wrestle with those questions. That my goal more than anything else over the next four weeks is more than convince you to be generous as a follower of Jesus is to convince you about the generosity of our God. And I'm going to trust that that and God's word is what's going to propel you to generosity more than me just going, hey, look at Jesus. Don't you feel bad about your presence now? That's not my goal. To be honest with you, uh, because of the stigmas in church world and because of the stories I'm aware of even in this room, we've kind of just as a leadership team shied away from talking about money as much as possible. We've done it when we had to, like when we worked through James or First Timothy, and it was like, we got to talk about it. Here we go. Here's our best foot forward. But as a whole, we've kind of shied away from tackling it as much as we're going to over the next four weeks. And really, the Lord just brought me under conviction pastorally uh, as someone who loves you and cares about you and wants to lead our church. And so let me just tell you why we are doing this more than anything else. Here's, here's why we are spending Advent talking about money, why I feel convicted that we haven't. Because we as a church are chasing after in all of life discipleship to Jesus. We as a church are chasing after an all-encompassing, all-of-life discipleship to Jesus. One of the just consistent drumbeats that we have been hitting as a church for the past two years of our existence is that our discipleship to Jesus should run countercultural to the ways of the world around us. If you've been around for any length of time, you have heard us say the way you live should look holistically different than the ways of your non-Christian neighbor, friends, and coworkers, and family. And the ways of this world when it comes to finance as Garrison so well laid out for us a few weeks ago in his sermon on simplicity, the way of this world is one of consumerism and consumption. And he gave us the stats, remember? The, the U.S. storage facility industry is a $29.5 billion, with a B, dollar industry. There are seven square feet of storage space in storage facilities right now for every American adult. Americans as a whole spend $1.2 trillion a year on what are classified as non-essential items. The average American household carries $16,000 in consumer credit card debt. Not like a mortgage payment or a car loan or student loans, consumer credit card debt. And I think we all know and we'd agree that this kind of cultural current of consumption just gets exacerbated over the course of this Christmas season, does it not? Experts are predicting that this year, the average American will spend just shy of $1,000 on Christmas presents. On Black Friday alone, two days ago, Americans typically on average spend over $50 billion. A season that has throughout church history been set aside to mark the generosity of God to his people in the coming arrival of Jesus Christ has been co-opted to be almost exclusively about getting and consuming more things. 
So as we think about and we strive for countercultural discipleship in all of life, I think there's a specific challenge for us in every season, but also in the Advent season of what it means to follow Jesus, that we as a church would be marked not by the way of America towards consumption, but by the way of Jesus towards generosity. So we're pausing as a church in this season to ask this very particular question. How do we look at our generous God who gave so much to us in Christ Jesus and learn to give generously in response? Specifically, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take time to look at the heart behind generosity. How do we learn to be what the Bible calls cheerful givers? We're going to look at the means for generosity, that all generosity starts with good stewardship and good management of what God has given us. And then we're going to end with our Christmas gathering on the 18th, talking about the reason for generosity. How does little sweet King Jesus in a manger propel us to be a people that live our entire lives open-handed towards the Lord and others? But to kick us off tonight, I want to spend just a few minutes considering this question from Matthew chapter 6. And that question is this, who is your God? Who is your God? This is the foundation for where we're going to be heading over the next couple of weeks. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19 to give you context for the passage. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Gospels. It's all about life flourishing in the kingdom of God, which just means life with God under the rule and reign of God. And Jesus addresses all sorts of things in Matthew 5 through 7. But in particular, in this passage, he's going to go after our money. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, it goes without saying that in Jesus' time, they did not have quite the elaborate online banking system like we do today, right? No Vanguard, no Wells Fargo, no Bank of America Online, none of that. And so what you would do if you had wealth in ancient Jewish system is you would have one of two options for storing your wealth. Option number one is you would go into the middle of nowhere where no one else knew where you were, and you would literally dig a hole and put your wealth, money, coins, grain, whatever it was, into the ground so when you needed it, you could go dig it up. Up later. That was option one. Option two was to build what they called storehouses, which are basically uh, ancient barns. Oftentimes in that culture, wealth was in the form of different types of crops. And so they would build these giant barns, these giant storehouses to put all of their wealth for the future. And Jesus starts this larger teaching on money by saying, hey, if that's your MO, if your goal is to store up as much as possible in holes in the ground or in giant storehouses, be careful because moth and rust destroy and thieves will break in and steal. In other words, if your life is built around going after and obtaining and keeping as much earthly possessions as possible, be careful because it will not last. Now, while we can't one-for-one one apply it, maybe you have a hole with lots of money somewhere, that's great, but for us, we can't one-for-one one apply it, but the, the principle remains the same. If we put our treasures in earthly things, it is not a sure foundation. It is temporary. It is fragile, and we know this, right? That house you purchased, I know many of us are purchasing houses or just purchase houses, right? That earthly possession that holds some of our finances in the form of a mortgage, that is fragile. <laughs> the HVAC can break, right? A pipe can burst, a tree can fall. That car that we purchase, right? Even though it might be shiny and brand new, at least to us, that is fragile. Someone can run a stop sign. A deer can run out in the middle of the road. Even if something catastrophic doesn't happen like those two or those examples, then those things just eventually wear out and decay, 
right? You gotta keep taking the car to the mechanic, hypothetically, over and over and over again. Those financial investments that you were finally able to make after years and years of advancing in your career. What happens, 2022? The sixth worst year of the stock market in American history. Does that stress you out a little bit? <laughs> Just saying that. And even if you make it through life with your possessions and treasures largely intact, here's the good news for you. One day you will die. Humanity has a 100% death rate unless your name is Jesus Christ. You can't take it with you when you go. It's fragile. It's temporary. I love uh, the words of author John Orberg in the book by the same title. He says, quote, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. If possessions do not last, earthly treasures do not keep. And so Jesus says, put your treasure somewhere lasting, somewhere sure, somewhere guaranteed. He's teaching us that there are actually ways to be generous with our finances that will store up treasure in God's kingdom to come that will not perish or fade. Because here's why, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what you have to understand about Jesus is you're reading through the gospels and he's talking about money with Jesus. It's almost never about money. It's almost always about the heart. Jesus always draws a direct line between our bank account to our heart from our bank account to our soul. And what he's trying to say here is, hey, look where your treasure is. Chances are that's going to be where your heart follows, meaning you will care most deeply and have most invested emotional interest in the things that you have spent the most money on. Let me give you a really good example of this. A few uh, months ago, Lindsay and I made one of the best decisions of our adult life. If you hung out with me since then, you know what I'm talking about. We bought a minivan. No shame. Not just any minivan, the ultimate minivan, a 2018 Honda Odyssey with a Blu-ray player. And it's light gray. And I love it. This was mostly my idea. I was like, we should do this. I love minivans. Let's get it. And her car broke down. And it was one of those situations where it was like almost equal money to fix it or sell it. And so it's like, let's just sell it. Let's buy a minivan. Now, I don't know if you've tried to purchase a car recently, but it is very, 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 very expensive, right? COVID supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons, new or used, it is very expensive. It felt like it cost us an arm and two legs, not just a leg, two legs to get this minivan. And so we did all the research. We did all the things. We went and we bought this minivan and we purchased it and Lindsay drives home in our other car and I turn, we bought it at CarMax off Independence on 74, which is a terrifying road, especially in a new car. And we pull, I pull onto 74 driving this minivan and I'm not what you would describe as a slow driver. I'm like, let's get where we need to go and as fast as possible and whoever's in my way can just get out of the way because I'm moving and I'm trying to get to where I'm going. But I kid you not, I turn out of CarMax onto 74 and where it's like, whatever the speed limit is, I don't know. I just usually go faster than everybody else. And I turn turn on there, the Lord is sanctifying me. And I turn on there and I kid you not, I'm going 35 miles per hour and I have no music on and I'm gripping the steering wheel as tightly as possible. And I'm literally out loud repeating over and over and over again, the price of the vehicle. And all I'm saying to myself is, Tim, do not crash. Tim, do not crash. Tim, do not crash. And it was like four miles to our house. And the whole way there, I'm like, do not crash. Do not crash. Do not crash. Here's the reality. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. There's a reason you care more about the house you bought than the house you rent. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I've got enough experience pastorally now to see almost always a direct correlation between those who care deeply about the kingdom of God and those who are most sacrificially generous towards the kingdom of God. 
And I don't mean just amount of money. I mean sacrificially at cost to themselves, giving financially to the kingdom of God. Almost always I can trace that person is going to be faithful based on the amount that they're willing to sacrifice. Jesus draws the line where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But here's the bad news for me when it comes to this minivan. You know what I was doing four years earlier when we purchased the car that I then traded to get the minivan? Driving home from where we bought it going like this, don't wreck, don't wreck, don't wreck, don't wreck. Because earthly possessions do not last. They're fragile, they're temporary. Then Jesus continues, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, this sounds weird to us today, right? For him to be like, I thought you were talking about money. Now you're talking about an eye. Here's what's kind of happening here. In Jesus' day, the eye was a widely used phrase to refer to greed or generosity. The eye was how in his culture they would talk about one's posture towards their possessions. If someone had a good eye, it meant that they were a generous person. They were content with what the Lord had given them. They were willing to give to others in need. But if someone had a bad eye or an evil eye, it meant that they were greedy and envious, meaning they were not content with what God had given them, always striving for more and more, always jealous of what others possessed or had. And so Jesus says, hey, if you have a bad eye, here's the warning. He picks up on this teaching and he says, if you have a bad eye, be careful because it's most likely that the entire person, your entire soul is also full of darkness. In other words, Jesus' teaching here could be summarized like this. If you are greedy, watch out because it has the power to consume and corrupt all of you. It's Jesus. Paul picks up on this very idea when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice he doesn't say money. That's a whole another sermon for another day. He says the love of money, the craving, the desire for more. He continues, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, that's incredible in our moment of deconstruction, is it not? That love of money would actually draw people away from Jesus. That love of money, desire for more. And Jesus says, if your eye is bad, meaning if your life is built around getting more and more or keeping more and more, more wealth, more money, more possessions, more affluence, Jesus says, and Paul says, it will not just lead to more sin around money, it will lead to corruption in your whole self. Which we have to agree, has crazy implications for our spiritual life, does it not? That means, according to Jesus and to Paul, you can have incredible habits and rhythms around spiritual practices. Like, you can be an A-plus Bible reader, you can pray consistently and constantly throughout the day, you can show up ready to engage in community group, you can worship passionately on Sundays, practice a robust Sabbath, and be the most incredibly missional person in your neighborhood. And Jesus would say, if you are not generous, your whole body is full of darkness. I mean, just think about it. When's the last time somebody talked to you and they said, hey, just wondering, just curious, I love you, like, how's your spiritual life going? Like, how's your walk with Jesus? How are you doing with the Lord? When's the last time that you mentioned your finances? Like, not like, well, my Bible reading, I'm struggling, or, you know, my prayer life is really good right now, the Lord's speaking to me a lot, or, you know, I'm building with my coworker, or I'm just deep rest on Sabbath, it's just going so well. When's the last time you were like, well, this is how I'm being generous. Well, this is how the Lord's moving me towards generosity, towards contentment and what he has given me. 
Think about how that would even change your own um, evaluation of your own spiritual life, right? Think about how that would change how you would approach group. If we would believe Jesus says a bad eye corrupts the whole person. What if you were in group time this week and somebody was like, man, I'm just really, really struggling to read the Bible. I'm struggling to care about God. I'm struggling to want the things of God. And you were like, have you thought about giving more? Like picking something in the kingdom of God? And that just throws us all kinds of off in our American culture, does it not? But Jesus connects our view of wealth right to the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And says, so if your view of treasure is bad, if your view of your possessions are evil and greedy and stingy and corrupt, be careful because your whole soul can be corrupt as well. And then Jesus lands at the crux of the matter. Uh, Let me just pause here before we get to verse 24. I don't want you to mishear me that this is only a problem for rich people. And I think there can be a temptation when I'm, when anybody's preaching on anything money to think that greed is a one-for-one correspondence with how much we have. But I've seen in my own life, you can be greedy with a lot and you can be greedy with a little and you can be generous with a lot and you can be generous with a little. Let's sell out the scriptures. Let's keep going. Jesus lands at the crux of the matter. That's a side off. It's not even in the notes. Verse 24. It goes bad when I start doing that. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters for he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That word money there is is more than just finances. It's actually the Greek word mammon. And in in Jewish culture at this time, mammon uh, meant more than just money. It was not less than money, but it was more than money. Uh, What they would use mammon as a word for is the personification of all wealth and finances and possessions that someone had. And in in Jewish literature around the time of Jesus, this allure and power of money was such a dangerous thing that they would write of it as if mammon was a demon or a spiritual force pitted against the kingdom of God. And Jesus picks up on that and he agrees. He's like, yep, there are two forces competing at play here for your soul, God and mammon. And I love the language here, the specificity of Jesus. Jesus says, you cannot serve both. Not should not, not should consider not. He says, you cannot, it's not possible. You will, according to Jesus, love the one and hate the other. These two forces, God and mammon are so at odds. Jesus says, you must, you have to, you have no other option. You must choose which you will serve. Which leads us all the way back to our question at the beginning of tonight. Who is your God? Who is your God? God or mammon? God or money? That's the question that sort of sits under the surface of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 6. Are you going to lay up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Are you going to have a good eye or an evil eye? Who is your God? Because you cannot have both, which at a deeper level, I think makes you wrestle with two even more in our face questions than just who is your God. I think asking who is your God, God or mammon, means you have to ask two more questions. The first is who gets your worship? Who gets your worship? Who gets your allegiance? Who gets your devotion? Who does your heart and thoughts and decision-making gravitate towards? When you think about changing companies or changing career paths or changing cities, is your decision-making driven by a salary number or where you can have a greater impact in the kingdom of God? When you make your budget for the month or for the year, are your first priorities comfort and security or generosity towards God and his people? Where are you seeking to lay up treasures? That's the first one. I think that's a more obvious one. But the second one, I think, even puts it more in our face. Not just who gets your worship, who gives you salvation? 
who gives you salvation, meaning who gives you identity and security, who gives you validation, who gives you worth, who gives you meaning, who gives you purpose, what makes you feel like you matter and are going to be okay no matter what the future holds. Who holds your future? Is your security for the days ahead found in the number of your bank account or the one who calls you son or daughter? Is your hope for the future found in the return of the stock market? Tomorrow's gonna be a, next year's gonna be a bull year, bear year, whatever the good one is. Is your hope for the future in that or in the one who reigns over all things? A few weeks ago when the lottery, the lottery jackpot hit like one and a half billion or whatever crazy that it was, uh, which is wild, uh, Garrison sent me an article that I thought was so fascinating. And it was by this psychologist who kind of reposted a lot of her research from a few years ago when it also got big, because that's what happens, it gets big every so often. And her studying, what she wanted to research was, why does everyone play the lottery? Like why, when it gets to this huge number, do all of us, hypothetically maybe, go out and buy a lottery ticket? A sermon on gambling for another day. But she was addressing, okay, it's very unlikely that people are going to win, right? She says, here's the odds. It's actually 250 times more likely that you will get struck by lightning and 80 times more likely that you will get eaten by a shark than winning the lottery. And she says, but so many people keep playing. Why do they do this? And what she found in her research was so fascinating. She said, most people, the vast majority, do not play the lottery because they actually think they're going to win. Most, if you ask them, are like, no, there's no way I'm gonna win. The odds are way too high. This is impossible. She said, psychologically, what happens in their brains is most people play because the time from when they buy the ticket to when the numbers are announced and the winner is selected, they can dream about the future. It says most people play the lottery because for those few hours where that ticket is in their hand and the announcement has not been made of who won, they feel a little bit more hopeful about what's to come in their life. A little more secure, a little more at peace. I never have to worry about money again. Oh, I never have to work again. My kids are going to be okay. My grandkids are going to be okay. My great-great-grandkids are going to be okay. We're going to afford the mortgage. We're going to afford the car. We're going to be all right. Church, that is mammon as God. It offers you peace, security, value, worth, meaning. All it asks is return is your total allegiance and devotion. But remember the problem that Jesus gives us. If you worship money, watch out because it's perishable and it will corrupt your soul. It will not give you what it promises to give you. Money will not provide the security it claims. I mean, that's why you read anybody who's ever quoted who has made a lot of money, and they'll all tell you the same thing. I mean, John D. Rockefeller, right, who was the guy in the early 1900s. At one point, John D. Rockefeller's uh, net worth was 1% of the entire U.S. economy. And he was approached by a reporter one time who said, John, like, how much is enough? Like, when are you going to stop trying to make more? And he said, they said, how much money is enough? And he said, quote, just a little bit more. Or Zig Ziglar, right, who's this businessman, speaker, author. He's quoted one time a few years ago as saying, quote, money won't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves. If you worship money, Jesus says, watch out. It's temporary and it corrupts. But if you worship God, here's the promise. Will your heavenly father not take care of your every need? And that's why I love what Jesus goes into next. Our English Bibles kind of trip us up a little bit because as you're reading, you're like, wait, there's a headline. That's a different section. I'll read that tomorrow. But it's one train of thought from Jesus in the sermon. So notice what he says, verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So that's his argument. You have to worship one. You can't worship God in mammon. Notice what he immediately goes into into his sermon. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says you can't worship both. Therefore, because you can't worship both, don't be anxious. Here's why. Do not be anxious what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, these storehouses where we put our earthly possessions, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Then he continues, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus knows so much of the reason why we worship money is because we have little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." see the connection that Jesus is making? Isn't that beautiful? And he would go from, hey, you can't worship both, but here's the good news. God will provide your every need. He says, does not God give us the security we look for in money? Does God not promise to care for us and provide for us? I mean, look at the promises. Feed us like the sparrow, clothe us like the lily. I mean, flowers and birds are cool, but we are made in the image of God. And God takes care of them. How much more will he take care of us? Even in the title, right? Jesus says in verse 32, your heavenly father. He says, hey, don't forget you're his children. Don't forget he calls you son and daughter in Jesus. I've gotten such a beautiful picture of this since becoming a dad. I love that Harper doesn't fret. Uh, she frets a little bit, but not because she's worried it's not going to come. She frets because we're not going to maybe not give it to her, but she never frets over having food to eat. She never frets over having clothes to wear. She doesn't wake up in the morning going, I wonder if I'm going to have something to wear today. She doesn't show up to the breakfast table going, I wonder if mom made me eggs today. No, she doesn't fret. Why? She knows we're her parents. We don't always give her snacks because sometimes she doesn't need them. But she knows we'll provide. Why? Because she knows we're mom and dad. Her trust is rooted in the relationship. Her trust is rooted in the fact that I'm her father and Lindsay is her mother. Her trust is rooted in the fact that she just knows I don't have to fret over this because these people just provide for me. They love me and they care for me. So the invitation of Jesus from Matthew 6 is don't worship God or money, but here's the beautiful invitation. You don't have to worship money because God promises to provide your every need. And so much of our worship of money is driven because of our lack of faith. Now, it's important to note that provision may not look how you want. He may provide in ways that, not provide in ways you desire. His provision doesn't mean showing up to take care of the debt you put yourself under. It doesn't promise in the text, hey, God will show up and take care of you every want. Jesus says, no, he provides our every need. And here's why I love Advent for this. Let me, let me kind of head towards the close. Church, do we not have the clearest evidence of God providing for our every need every year in the Advent season? Here's the promise. We know 
God will take care of our every need because he took care of our greatest need. That's why Advent pushes us to generosity because we look back 2,000 some odd years ago and we see that God sent his son to take on flesh, enter into humanity, live the life we could not live, embody the temptations that we lived through, yet live perfectly without sin and yet go to the cross, dying the death that we deserved, dying the death that was owed us and our sin and yet rose three days later, putting death to death and rising again. I love the way Romans 8 says it. It says it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do we not in the hope and promise of Advent see that God will take care of his people? If he took care of our greatest need, namely forgiveness of sins, washing in his blood and life forever with God, won't he take care of tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day after that? And so here's the reality. Jesus says you cannot serve God in money, but when you take a step back and look at the two and look at the offers on the table in mammon and in God, I think the question becomes, and why would you want to? Why would you want to? You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. You have the promise of provision. We'll get into this next week. You worship and are loved deeply more than you can imagine by the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Will he not provide your every need? And this brings us back to our Give Like God initiative, right? It's a chance for us to tangibly put into practice the invitations of Jesus in Matthew 6. Jesus says, listen, if you want to have a self that is in love with Jesus, then it starts by having a good eye, starts by being a generous person. If you want to grow in your faith, okay, I don't want to worship God, I want to worship money. I think one of the invitations of Jesus is put it into practice and let your heart catch up. Start being generous and let your soul catch up. Jesus tells us this a few times in a few different ways in Matthew 6. He says it in verse 20 and 21. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so the invitation for us is if we want our hearts to be directed in worship to God, I think Matthew 6, Jesus would tell us our treasure must be directed towards him as well. So we're giving ourselves as a church the opportunity to do just that. And so let me just spend the last two minutes talking about what we're doing in this season. So you should have a card in your bulletin. It's green. Uh, I just dropped mine. It looks like this. It says, give like God on the front, and it's got way too many words on the back. It's because I designed it, not Stephen. Um, what we want to do this year is not just a sermon series, we actually want to do an initiative, right? We talk about this all the time from James, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, not just to be people that claim with our mouths that we trust God with our finances, but to actually put it into practice. And so we've got some opportunities to do that. Uh, so let me just talk real briefly about why we chose these kind of three parts of the initiative. Uh, the first is to give here, to give to citizens. Now, let me just be really clear. If you're not a member here, if you're not an official part of our church family, just skip number one. We don't care. We don't want your money. Uh, we want Jesus for you. We want you to belong. Please come to membership class next week. Let's talk about what it means to be a part of our church family. We don't want your money. Skip over step one. But if you're a part of our church family, then you know, because we say it all the time, that this is a first step in living out being a generous person towards the kingdom of God. Over and over in the, in the scriptures, we have this invitation to take care first and foremost of those within the household of faith. And so we want to be a people. So if you are not giving to this church, or if you are under giving, then I would just encourage you, step number one, 
important for you is to give and give generously. There's a ton of things we want to see God do in our city to move forward in the gospel. And let me just be really clear. I'm not saying that because we are anywhere near behind on our 2022 annual budget. A little peek behind the curtain in church life. Sometimes pastors are like, we're doing a Christmas offering. And it's because they need to make up for all the money they spent the past year. It's not us. We're actually doing really well. We have a great team of people on our board of directors who oversee all of our finances and how we spend it, our money and all that kind of stuff, who just are good stewards. And so I'm so grateful for those folks on that team. Um, this is because we want to do more. We want to see God do more in and through our church. So that's step number one. Step number two is to give to our 2022 Christmas offering. This is something we've done every single year. And by that, I mean last year and this year as a church. Thank you. That was a good joke. Uh, and we're going to continue to do in the years to come. And so we want to be a people who set aside Advent, not just to say, okay, we're generous throughout the year in and through this church, but we're also generous outside of this church. And we're generous to things across our city and across our world. This year in particular, we're trying to raise $5,000 towards three different initiatives. So 5,000 total that we're going to disperse among three things. The first is to church planning in the United States. If you're not aware, we are a part of a group called the Harbor Network, which is a group of about a hundred or so churches across the country seeking to plant and multiply thriving churches. And so we want to see more churches planted, not just in our city, but across our country. And they're doing incredible work to see that happen. And so we want to give financially to see the gospel take root, not just in Charlotte, but across our country and across our world. Second thing is we want to raise some money to go towards ministry initiatives with the Dowd YMCA. So we'll talk about this at the end of the gathering, but we are moving Sunday services, Sunday gatherings next week to the Dowd. And that comes not just with a new meeting space, but with a new ministry partner. And we don't have just this idea of let's just meet there on Sundays, bounce in, bounce out. We want to lock arms with them as we seek to love and serve folks in our city. And so we have tons of cool ideas that we want to talk about and think about. None of these are promises, but stuff like a free medical clinic for the neighborhoods around South End. We want to do parents night out to love and serve uh, parents in uh, their membership. We want to do things like addiction groups and grief counseling and new mom support group that we currently do. We want to pick that up, put it in the Dowd, all types of things to introduce people to the good news of news of Jesus that just takes resources and finances. And then the last thing we want to do is something we did last year, and, and they actually asked us to do it again. We want to provide Christmas for a few families at Lansdowne Elementary School. Lansdowne is one of our Serve Charlotte partners. We partner with them throughout the year in different ways. So we want to love and bless and serve five families in that community uh, that are under-resourced that just we want to give them Christmas, and we want to have uh, help them have presents to give to their kids on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whenever they celebrate. And then third step is to take the personal finance class. So if you're like, man, I, I can't think about being generous. My finances are all over the map. We want to come alongside of you and equip you and help you in that. Uh, and so Garrison, who's one of our pastors, and Drew, who's the president of our board of directors, is actually going to be teaching a class in January on here's how you make a budget. Here's how you do all of the things of just like, here's how much money you can take in. Here's where you should put it. Here's how you save and give and spend and all of these things, really practical tools towards uh, freeing your money up as a good steward to be generous over the long term for years and years to come. And so if you're like, my first step is I just need help getting my budget in order, that's great. We have a step for you. Step number three, take the personal finance class in January. Uh, to make it really easy for you, we set up a website, givelikegod.com, mostly because I thought it'd be fun to own, givelikegod.com. Uh, but seriously, all of the resources are there, all of more information about why we're doing what we're doing, all of these partners, all of that. Uh, there's links to give, all those kinds of things. My, my request, and this is how I'll close before we take communion together. My request is that you would take honest time with the Lord in front of God, with his spirit, to ask him, Lord, what do you have for me in this Christmas season? How would you have me be generous? 
Listen, I, this is not, I said it at the beginning and I mean it. I really, I, I am totally 100% okay getting up on January 8th saying, hey, we raised like 50 bucks. I'm okay with that if it's a spirit of generosity from our church. So maybe a spirit of generosity for you is like, I gave two bucks. That's awesome. Be a cheerful giver in generosity and give two bucks. Maybe for you, it's like, I gave all five. Let's raise the goal. That sounds awesome too. I don't care. What I care about is your discipleship to Jesus and your heart with the Lord. So my request of you, my invitation of you, and you can feel free to ignore it over the next four weeks and just come and listen to worship. That's okay too. I'll let you deal with that with the Lord. But my invitation for you is just to sit with God for a few minutes or a few moments over the next couple of weeks and say, Lord, how would you have me or my family participate? That's my request. Let's see what the Lord says. And when he says it, be obedient. See what he does. Seek the Lord, trust the Lord in all things. GiveLikeGod.com. We'll be talking about it over the next four weeks. I'm sure that you will hear much more about it. If you have questions, you can come talk to me. Let's move back uh, kind of into worship with taking communion together. This is something that we do at the end of every sermon as a chance to remember everything we just talked about from Matthew 6, that Jesus will provide our every need because he provided for our greatest need in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to take communion together. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in because you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I'm going to invite you to take Christ. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus after the gathering. But for all who are in Christ, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Church, every time we eat this little wafer, we remember the body of Jesus on the cross, dying on our behalf. So church, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Every time you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. So church, we drink of this little bit of juice, not flippantly, but in deep gratitude and remembrance of the blood of Christ, which washes us clean and makes us right with God. So church, take and drink. If you would, you can stand with me. Let me pray. Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, that you have taken care of our greatest need. Lord, that in Christ Jesus, you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in our brokenness. You did not leave us in our shame or our guilt, Lord, but you sent your son, born 2,000 plus years ago in a manger, taking on flesh. What a mystery. That you, that God would, would stoop down to us, to humanity, to enter into the temptations that we face and the weaknesses that we have and the suffering that we experience. Yet in the midst of all of that, to live perfect to be without sin in thought, without sin in word, without sin in deed. And yet, as one who was without sin, you went to the cross. You took our sin, you died our death, and yet you rose again, giving us your life. God, and so I pray over the next few weeks as we as a church look back on the very first arrival of Jesus, and we look forward in hopeful anticipation on the second arrival of Jesus, Lord, I pray that more than anything else, you would shape our hearts towards gratitude and towards generosity. 
God, as we stare at you in a manger, that you would open up our hearts and you would open up our hands to be a people that don't cling to our possessions, don't cling to our finances, don't worship our money as what gives us security and hope and a promise of a future, but we live open-handedly because we know that our future is secure in you. That one day Christ will return and he will make all things new. Lord, so I pray we as a church would use our resources not towards earthly treasure, but towards heavenly treasure that lasts. Lord, myself included, God, would you do a deep work of generosity in me? You know that I need it. Would you help me? Lord, we love you. Thanks for Jesus. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.